I grew up suffering hay fever and uh, asthma, and at kids, uh, time uh, as a kid, my, my breathing would be so compromised that uh, I had to inhale the f- the awful fumes of this little powder that my mom would burn in the days long before you know inhalers. And uh, it was a, a horrible, restrictive thing for a kid who liked to play in the haymow and uh, with, with with his uh, friends and cousins. But after becoming a Christian and meeting the person of the Holy Spirit, I was working as a greenskeeper for Champagne Country Club in the summer of 1977. And I remember one day in the in the summer walking up the 17th fairway towards uh, the the club when out of the blue. I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, in, in my mind, not audibly, um, Ben, you trusted me to save you. Why don't you trust me to heal your allergies? And the thought just startled me. Uh, it was nothing that I'd really ever thought about before. But it had entered my mind, and after a few minutes of consideration, I said, well, okay. I responded to Jesus' invitation to trust him for healing. And while nothing dramatic happened at that very moment, as far as I could recall, uh, nevertheless, from that day forward, I never struggled with hay fever or asthma again. And I look at that seminal experience as kind of a catalyst in my personal journey of experiencing Jesus as the great physician. Well, we're now a couple of weeks into what we're calling our 40-day adventure Finding real life. It's a season, extended season of growth and discovery and change as we, uh, more, uh, completely experience the life that God has for us. It coincides with a historic observation and celebration of Lent and will conclude with a, a resurrection celebration on Easter morning. Our expectations during our 40 days are rooted in three cornerstone prayers. One for ourselves that, that we would more fully experience God's real life. Uh, and experience a breakthrough uh, in the areas that he knows we need. Secondly, prayer for our five friends to experience God's touch in their life. And then thirdly, we're praying for our church family and our communities that are represented to experience God's kingdom as well. Many of us are strengthening our 40-day adventure with some kind of fasting. I know many of you have now successfully completed a week or so of detox from whatever it is you're re- resisting and, and, and uh, fasting. And so I commend you, encourage you. Uh, I'm proud of you. And if you've fallen you know, off, I just encourage you to start up tomorrow morning and do it again. There's no harm in, in a relapse and in restarting. You know, which, so life's got a, a, just a big reset button, and you've got it pushed today. There you go. Now you can start tomorrow and realign your fast. Um, Last week, we began looking at the Gospel of John, and we saw that real life is forgiveness for our sin and freedom from its power. Today, we're going to discover that real life is freedom from sickness. So let's pray together as we look to God's Word. Lord, at the start of this brand new day, we just want to say thank you for life and breath and soundness of mind and the the joy of rising to serve you and experience life yet uh, one more day. Thank you that we're entering a season in the spring of renewal uh, when, when the whole world, the whole earth, Lord, speaks of, of hope and promise of new life. And for that, we're grateful. And we pray that you would come to bring your kingdom among us today in the ways that you know we need. Put your power on your word to our life. And we welcome your presence here in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember getting glasses for the very first time when I was a senior in high school, Richwoods High School right here in Peoria. Styling. Hey, baby. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, Adam wanted to put that in the slideshow, and over much reluctance, I allowed him. Now, the social awkwardness and embarrassment as an already insecure teenager was mitigated only by the fact that I could actually see. Things that were fuzzy now became clear, and for that, I was grateful. We're going to work on a new shirt, though. Those of you with a similar condition know the joy of emerging from the eye doctor's office with a new set of lenses, uh, and, you know, everything that, that was previously fuzzy is sharp and clear, and, and you see details that you didn't even know were there before. Well, in some ways, when I experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit in the summer of 1977, it was like getting a new set of lenses uh, with which to read the Bible. I saw stuff in here that I never saw before. It became clear. Oh, now, it had always been in the Bible. It's just that I'd never seen it. And uh, it was now, as I was reading the Gospels, it was amazing what those new set of lenses enabled me to see as I read it. Bolstered by my first healing experience from asthma and, and hay fever on the golf course just that summer, uh, it was amazing to me how uh, I could see healing everywhere in the four Gospels, where I'd never seen it before. Uh, and ever since, I've been discovering more and more about the importance of healing and God's desire to heal. Now, one of the most compelling reasons uh, to believe both that uh, the real life that Jesus said he wants for us to have, John 10.10, 10, includes healing and that we are actually to pray for others is Jesus's model. Everywhere Jesus went, he functioned as a healer, didn't he? And he is supposed to be our model of faith and practice, right? And if sickness was the will of God, then Jesus spent the majority of his time ministering against God's purposes in the lives of his children. But everywhere Jesus went, he functioned as a healer. He never saw benefit in illness for God's people. Rather, he was moved by compassion and always healed every person who came to him. Now, in the Gospels, there are 41 recorded instances of physical and mental healing. But this by no means represents the total number of individuals actually healed, because many of these reports are actually summaries of the healings of large people. For instance, one such summary in Matthew's Gospel, the 15th chapter, if you want to flip over there quickly, in Matthew 15, verse 30, the text reads, A vast crowd brought to him people who were lame, blind, crippled, those who couldn't speak, and many others. They laid them before Jesus, and he healed them all. The crowd was amazed that those who hadn't been able to speak were talking, the crippled were made well, the lame were walking, and the blind could see again, and they praised the God of Israel. Sweeping summary statement. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, says it well in his excellent book, Power Healing, and I quote, Of the 3,774 verses in the four Gospels, 484 relate specifically to the healing of physical and mental illness and the resurrection of the dead. More impressively, of the 1,257 narrative verses in the Gospels, 484 verses, 38.5%, are devoted to describing Jesus' healing miracles. Except for a discussion of miracles in general, the attention devoted to the healing ministry of Jesus is far greater than that devoted to any other experience. 
healing is everywhere in the Gospels. I just never saw it. Now, Jesus framed his ministry within the context of the kingdom of God. He announced the inauguration of his ministry in Mark's Gospel, the first chapter, with these words, The time promised by God has come at last, he said, the kingdom of God is now here or at hand. And in Matthew's gospel, we see how he contextualized the the ministry of Jesus in the kingdom with these words in Matthew 9, verse 35 to 37. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this ministry of Jesus touched every point of human need, spiritual, physical, emotional, mental, relational. Jesus himself described his work in Luke's gospel in this way. It's like bringing good news to the poor proclaiming that captives would be released, that blind people would see, that the oppressed would be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor would come. You see, in the age to come, the the kingdom age to come, we are all going to be completely whole, won't we? We'll be free from uh, wound and defect of impairment of all kinds um, in the new heavens and the new earth. But in the first coming of Jesus, that redemption of the whole body, the uh, us being redeemed and and uh, set totally free, has already begun now in this present age. That is, the Lord's favor has come. It's the time of the Lord's favor. Now, it's interesting that the word that's used uh, in the original language that the Gospels were written, Greek, the word to heal or to make well, we would we would pronounce it sozo. I don't pretend to be neither Greek or scholar, but I, I can read what other scholars have written. So, for instance, uh, indicating that a woman's sins had been forgiven, Jesus spoke to her in Luke 7.50 and said, Your faith has saved sozo you. In another instance, indicating that the leper had been physically healed, Jesus said to him in Luke 17, verse 19, Stand up, your faith has healed sozo you. So the word sozo is translated at other places in the Bible that you're holding in your in your hand or on your phone. It, it, the word is also translated in other places in the, in the New Testament as uh, to save, to heal, to preserve, to deliver, to be made whole, or to bring safely through. It's a comprehensive term that we today would say uh, might best be described as to be saved out from under the devil's power and restored to the wholeness of God's order by the power of the Spirit. It is far greater than any one specific instance of healing or deliverance. In this sense, salvation to be saved is more than just escaping hell. Rather, it's a very rich term that refers to our rescue and recovery in every aspect of our life. It refers to experiencing wholeness, the life of God's kingdom, what life looks like when God the King rules. So think of that as we look at our texts for today. Now, in this all-inclusive sense, Jesus' healing works are signs that the kingdom has actually arrived. 
that the future age to come has actually broken into this present evil age, bringing real life. So now let's look at several examples today in the in the New Testament. We're going to look at uh, two texts found in Mark's Gospel, the fifth chapter, if you want to turn there. The first case is the healing of Jairus' daughter. And we'll begin reading in Mark 5, beginning in verse 21. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake, where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. And Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. Verse 35 continues the story. While he was still speaking, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, leader of the synagogue, and they told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. So the the story kicks off in verse 21. We read that a large crowd had gathered. Well, Jesus always was ministering to crowds. You can imagine the kind of swelling interest, even chaos and perhaps frenzy there might have been when desperate, broken, in-need people without any hope or recourse in this world were hearing and seeing these kinds of dramatic miracles. It must have been crazy. Now, the kind of craziness we're more accustomed to surrounds the launch of a new pair of Nike tennis shoes, where just last week in Orlando, Florida, more than 100 deputies had to be called to quelch the raucous crowd. It was all fighting on who gets to get in line for a $220 pair of foam posit Galaxy shoes. That's the craziness we know. Nevertheless, while Jesus always ministered to crowds, crowds of hundreds and crowds of thousands, he always had time for the individual. As a local synagogue leader, J. Iris would have been a highly prominent member of the community, well-known, probably well-liked, held in high regard. And yet now here he is falling at Jesus' feet. In that culture, to fall at the feet would indicate submission, humility, and that the person that you were uh, in front of was of a much higher rank than you, much greater stature. And he's desperate because his only daughter, 12 years old, uh, is now dying. You know, we all have pain and difficulty, uh, situations in our life that take us to the very end of our own resources, don't we? It might be sickness, a a disease, a a life-threatening disease, of ourselves or maybe a family member or someone we love. It, it might be in a relationship or in our finances or in our work, in our future. It, it, we we end, end up coming face-to-face with something that's beyond our ability to fix. And we all know in, in these cases that wealth, 
and prominence and position in society, reputation, it does nothing to minister to the need that we have that's out of our, out of our power. And this means that all around us every day in our getting up, going to work, work a day, going to school life, that there are Jairuses who really need God's intervention in their life. His humble, desperate appeal was simple and direct and confident. Please come and lay your hands on her and heal her, heal her so she can live. Verse 35 continued that messengers arrived with the tragic news that uh, he shouldn't bother the teacher anymore because she had passed. Time was gone. Verse 36, Jesus' encouragement within the earshot of that bad news was, don't be afraid, just have faith. Plain and simple, not very complicated. And then in verse 37 to 40, we read that Jesus was trying to change the perspective. She isn't dead, she's just asleep. Well, she was very much indeed dead, actually. But Jesus' word always tries to change our difficult, impossible perspective, our situation. You see, things in God's kingdom are not as they appear in the natural. She was very much dead. Those people knew what dead people were like in that culture. She was dead. But Jesus' word, things in God's kingdom, aren't as they appear in the natural. The diagnosis that the doctor gives is not necessarily the last word. The pain and physical symptoms of discomfort in your body are not necessarily the way things need to stay. The oh and the head shrugging by the relatives and close, well-meaning friends like, oh, I feel sorry for you, isn't how things need to remain. Verses 40 to 42, Jesus then evicted the unbelieving crowd. He took the parents and the three apostles in with him to heal, in this case, in private. And he grabs the little girl by the hand. Why do you think he did that? I suspect so that when she wakes up, as he's confident she will, there's a point of contact, of of, of human care and compassion. That's just my theory. If you hang around here for a long time, you're going to find out I've got a lot of theories. But I'll suggest them as such. And then he told her to get up. Now, this is a prayer of command, and it's, not terribly eloquent, it's rather short and rather direct, four words. Little girl, get up. And she immediately stood up and walked around. This is not a gradual like awakening as if aroused from a long sleep and her body starting to get put back together. This is immediate, total, dramatic, supernatural healing right there, right there. Luke says in his account of this miracle that at that moment her spirit or life, returned. That's beautiful and powerful. And you just think, like, what all that had to happen physiologically for that miracle to take place? People that are dead don't come back to life. And so God had to, like, change a whole bunch of those systems and and re-energize stuff and change stuff and repair stuff. I mean, it was a complicated physical miracle. And then I want to encourage you to think this morning about all the other elements of healing that had to take place. Emotionally, well, now, her parents were obviously overjoyed, as you would be if you were a parent. Uh, Their only daughter returning to life. And anyone that's lost a child or that's lost a close relative knows exactly the incredible pain and trauma of that grief that the, the parents were experiencing at that moment. It was a reprieve from the sentence of grief. 
And so emotionally, it was, must have been an incredible release. And think about what the little girl herself was experiencing. Now, as a 12-year-old child in that Jewish culture, she would have been approaching the age that she would most likely have been married. And every little girl, you know, probably most girls, dream of marrying someday, uh, cutting out pictures of the magazines of what their wedding's going to look like and all that kind of stuff. Well, she was probably no, no different. So as she was approaching marriageable age, her dream disappears because she's sick and then dies. And now to come back to life and have a chance at what actually had vanished away, can you imagine how excited she was? Think about the social and, and, and relational aspects. Those in the community in general and those in the, in the synagogue in particular would have no doubt been encouraged. Because, you know, when you go through crisis together, you, you become fast friends, foxhole faith buddies, as it were, you know, is one way to express it. But you, you go through trauma together and you, you really like, your lives are glued together in a way that nothing else can. So their bonds of friendship are strengthened. And you might think of mom and dad as even being reunited. Think about it with me this way. Statistics today show that nearly 9 out of 10 couples who experience the death of a child will divorce because they're unable to navigate and manage the blame and anger towards one another. It's just a fact. And so we could say Jairus and his wife avoided an almost uh, unavoidable fate. Their, their, their relationship was strengthened. Financially, think about it with me this way. No longer did, did uh, that family require the care of physicians and the expenses that were involved there. Jairus had no more lost time from work at the church, tending to take care of his, of his uh, ailing daughter. This healing brought the kingdom of God in all of its varied forms. The entire family was saved out from underneath the devil's power and restored to the wholeness of God's order through the Holy Spirit. That's real life. Let's look at one other snapshot that Mark records that's embedded in this very text. The woman with the issue of blood will begin reading in Mark 5, verse 25. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors and had over the years had spent everything she had to pay for them and she'd gotten no better. In fact, she'd gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus and so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she'd been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. And so he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask, Who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. So the story here opens up, accounting that the woman had suffered constant bleeding for 12 years. Friends, this is not the inconvenience of having an irregular cycle. This is the trauma of a nonstop period for 12 years. 
and all of the physical and emotional and social and financial trauma that surrounds such a condition. In that culture, this woman would have been considered ceremonially unclean and would have been forbidden by religious and civil law from being in public. She could not touch or be touched. Uh, if anyone touched her clothing, they were considered unclean as well and then required ritualistic cleansing to be restored to life in the community. And so this healing need had incredible social implications. She couldn't be touched. She could not touch. She probably was now divorced or had never been married in this case uh, and was marginalized in the culture in every way. Uh, she couldn't go to the market, couldn't attend worship services at the local synagogue. Uh, she couldn't hang out with friends, enjoy an evening out, couldn't meet up a friend at Starbucks or Panera and have a cup of coffee. She was marginalized and isolated. She was in physical pain, probably quite fearful, uncertain what the future held, uh, broken, ostracized, lonely, desperate, and without hope because the physicians were unable to help her. In fact, the text reads, she had grown worse. And the financial ramifications were even indicated in the text. Now that she's, she's broke, she spent her entire life savings trying to get better with no success. She felt financial pressure as well. People in our culture are no strangers. The average uh, household in America today spends $3,100 a year on health-related expenses, and in many cases, much, much more. 15 to 20% of our uh, uh, culture are in America doesn't have health insurance, and debt from medical bills is one of the leading causes for bankruptcy and divorce in our culture. And so our pervasive need for healing is economically driven as well. Well, verses 27 to 28 in the text indicate that she'd heard about Jesus and was now willing to take a colossal risk by venturing out in public. Her faith, in this sense, willingness to take a risk, was marked by three things. A belief that Jesus could heal her. She'd heard about that perhaps seen it in herself. Her persistence in actually pushing through a crowd that was probably uh, rejecting her, scoffing her, wondering what she was doing. And then a mental picture of her healing. If I could just touch the hem of his garment. Faith is an important element in healing. Um, sometimes it's present in the person being prayed for. Sometimes it's present in the people doing the praying. Sometimes it appears to be absent in either. But faith can be released in a specific measure. The risk can be released as in touch or the laying on of hands. Uh, in, in the case that we just read, uh, through a spoken word or a command, uh, physical sensations of God's power as the woman in this story experienced, and even through the sharing of communion, which we'll celebrate in our worship uh, later today can be a point of releasing faith to trust God for physical healing to take place. The text uh, indicates that in verses 29 to 30 that she was immediately healed, in this case, in public. And we know that she knew it and Jesus knew it. There was no question about it. Jesus felt healing power leave his body. Verses 30 to 32, then he began to make, Jesus began to make an inquiry as to who touched him. And his disciples said, like, are you nuts? 
I mean, look at the crowd that's gathered pressing around you and you want to know who touched you? I think it's interesting that Jesus, using natural means as a way of gathering information, was indicating that he didn't know everything. You see, he healed as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, not as the divine Son of God trying to attempt to prove his divinity. It corroborates that Jesus needed additional information in order to partner with the Holy Spirit in bringing God's kingdom to people. Verses 32 to 34 show that now she was healed and suddenly afraid. Now she's going to get busted. Like, what's going to happen? You know, so she's trembling and begins to realize there's no way out of this thing. So she comes and falls down in front of Jesus. Again, a willing act of humility and surrender. And Jesus then speaks the emotional healing of peace. He speaks the social restoration to her place in the community. She's no longer unclean. He affirmed her sense of dignity and and self-worth and self-respect as he blessed her simple, uh, risk-taking faith. And he declared an end to this season of suffering in her life. He said, your faith has made you well, has sozoed you. That is real life. So in light of these two powerful texts, what do we do to more fully experience freedom from sickness? I'd like to conclude by sharing just four tips with you, if I could. I want to suggest first that we should believe that the real life of God's kingdom includes wholeness of every kind, including freedom from sickness. Now, will everyone get healed? No. Our theology certainly allows for it, and we would welcome it, but in this overlapping of ages, this present evil age that's been invaded by the kingdom of God, we know that our sinful world that is cursed by sin uh, will still have its effects, effects of sickness and disease, lack and poverty and hurt. They remain, and in this sense, we will still continually suffer sickness. We would earnestly desire to see more of God's power, and I like to think of it this way. Lord, bring healing and restoration. Let us experience more of the already and less of the not yet. We want more of God's kingdom already being here and less of it not yet being here. We want to experience these same kinds of signs and wonders and miracles today. They didn't pass away with the death of the last apostle. The church has been charged to continue the ministry that Jesus began. In that sense, we should expect them and we we should earnestly pray. But no, not everyone will be healed. Shouldn't all healing happen instantaneously? Good question. And it is true that most of the healings recorded in the New Testament happened immediately. However, there were instances of progressive healing as well. For instance, Jesus had to pray twice for a blind man when after the first prayer, he asked, what do you see? And he said, well, I see people as trees walking around. And Jesus had to pray a second time. And in another text in Luke chapter 17, there were 10 lepers that were healed as they went, indicating some degree of progression. Uh, in, In the Great Commission recorded in Mark's gospel, the 16th chapter, The text reads that those who believe will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, indicating a progression of recovery. What about medical science? Well, the New Testament actually says very little about the medical profession, but it does affirm the use of medical means 
And God's gifted today doctors and nurses and practitioners and people who work at hospitals and research institutions with both gifts and passion to fight the same enemy we're fighting in a different realm. And ultimately, I know of very few practitioners who would not admit that at the end of the day, only God can really heal. And what about death? Well, we have to accept the fact that it's appointed unto men once to die, the scriptures declare. But you don't have to die before your time prematurely. Neither do we have to necessarily die from sickness. So let's start by believing that the real life that Jesus said he wants for all of us to have includes the wholeness of his kingdom, specifically freedom from sickness. Second tip that I'm going to suggest is that we always pray for healing to come. We follow Jesus' model by compassionately and powerfully praying for his kingdom to come and relieve us from sickness and suffering. Pray for ourselves and, our, and in our homes with our children and our small groups at work when it might be appropriate, when you're at the coffee shop with a friend, and every Sunday when we gather together, we, we pray together for God's kingdom to come and minister healing. And then we trust God, that is to say, we take the risk of having faith that he's good, that he loves us that he cares about us compassionately, and that he wants to heal us, and that we expect him to actually come and move. And in this sense, we're always leaning into healing. We continue to listen for him uh, for specific instructions by his Holy Spirit. And then even when he doesn't heal, we, we don't minimize what the Holy Spirit is doing in any one of those exchanges, because we know that when people are prayed for or we receive prayer, we're always experiencing the love of God the Father for us. And so we never minimize what we, what we can't even see. We trust God in his sovereign wisdom to dispense his healing at just the right time in just the right ways. That's our job to trust. His job is to heal. Always pray for healing to come. The third tip is while we're waiting for healing to come, we just take whatever steps are necessary to get well. Don't throw your medicine away, or like I did in my early exuberance, throw my glasses away. I just drove around blind, you know, for a period of a few months. That was dumb. Our actions don't move God. Now, if God tells you as an act of your faith to take your glasses off because your eyesight's actually healed, that's a different story. And I've seen that happen actually a couple of times, but it didn't work for me when I threw mine away. So don't do something stupid. Use common sense, but listen to the Lord. And don't do what people tell you to do. Do what God tells you to do. And we should be very slow to counsel one another about why people aren't getting well. You have no idea. Why people don't get well? That's a quintessential question. Why, why aren't people experiencing more healing? We don't know the answer to it. So we just keep leaning into healing. We keep believing the kingdom because that's what he teaches. Don't, let's not water down the Bible to the level of our experience. Let's raise our experience up to the level of the Bible. And that'll keep us busy till the kingdom comes in full. Use common sense and recognize that God created our bodies with incredible recuperative potential. And at the same time, understand that hard work and healthy diet and regular exercise and proper rest are God's designs to stay healthy, and so honor those. And then we're going to try to be a healing, caring community the best we can. 
We're going to pray regularly for the sick. We're going to offer compassionate care and support until such a time as healing comes. And that means we're going to take meals to one another when we're sick. We're going to babysit each other's kids, maybe volunteer vacation days for somebody at work because they need them. We're going to visit each other in the hospital. We want to be a healing, caring community that loves and supports one another as we seek God to bring healing in whatever ways he chooses to to move. So thirdly, we're going to wait for healing to come and take whatever steps are necessary uh, in the meantime to get well. And fourthly, we're going to celebrate the real life when it actually comes. We want our church life to be punctuated with stories of God's provision. And I'd like to conclude today by reading Tony Dinkins' story. Tony's in the back row there, for those of you who want to know, Tony and his wife, Chris. And I'd like to read the story that he wrote. In February 2009, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. I had a tumor in my bladder the size of a quarter. Rather than remove my bladder, my urologist elected to remove the tumor and prescribe a treatment protocol that lasted three years. In June of 2009, I had another scare because my doctor thought that another growth had occurred and scheduled a biopsy. And this started the whole cycle of fear and anxiety over again. The biopsy result was negative, and we were thankful for God's grace to give us strength. The doctor appointment that I had last Thursday was a regularly scheduled appointment follow-up, and it was a great report and revealed that I am all clear. Next week, I'll begin my final series of three treatments, followed by a checkup in September. Only those who have had cancer can understand the impact that it has on your life. There have been tears, fears, anger, and resignation, but God has been our strength. He has sustained my wife, Chris, because she has often felt hopeless and may have suffered more than me. Every time I sat in my doctor's office waiting to have a checkup, hoping that all would be well, I've always prayed that God would give me the grace and strength to face whatever the results were. And that's not to say that I didn't pray often for healing and ask prayer from others that I would not have a reoccurrence of cancer. I prayed, declared, rebuked, and claimed. I'm not sure that I do not have cancer. No one who has ever had a battle with this disease ever is. But I'm always hopeful, and I know that it is by God's grace that I am cancer-free for now. And that's a reason to celebrate. Thank God for that. Lord, we are so grateful that when your grace does break into our life and bring your kingdom and brings healing, that it's reason to celebrate. And we do not take these doses of your grace and your kingdom and your healing lightly. And so for Tony's uh, uh, healing, Lord, we say thank you. And all of us, Lord, who've experienced your healing touch in our lives in some manner, we say thank you. We say thank you for your grace, your hand on our lives and our families. But Lord, Lord we, we need more. Many of us are facing right now uh, issues beyond our resources. And so we pray, bring your kingdom in the ways that you've taught us today. We expect, Lord, as we lean in to your grace and your goodness and your mercy and your kindness to, ex- to experience your healing hand. Even today, as we worship, as we take communion, may we experience your healing touch. And now, Lord, on these gifts that we give to you, uh, we pray that you're, you would bless them, take them for what they are, tokens that re- really say, in a small way, our life is fully yours. We love you. Amen.